Hello and welcome to We Are History. And Angela's already lost it as we're trying to set the sound levels. Sorry, I was supposed to start this one, but we were to explain to the people listening at home about this full start of me just laughing is we are recording remotely because we're in lockdown. John's in his house in Clapham. I'm in my house in Brighton. And it was a really simple thing our producer Spike asked us to do then was to count backwards from 10. It's hard. It's hard. Just so that we can. You would not believe how many takes that took for two reasonably well-educated individuals to just count backwards from 10. There's so many different numbers to remember. (laughs) Sorry. Welcome to We Are History Pod. I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. We're a little bit giddy because we've already recorded one episode today. And so I think now we've got a bit giddy, haven't we, John? We have. We've Um, we've gone from, you know... Yeah, death and murder. It's, We're going to do something yeah. a bit happier now. We're not happier, but just yeah. more less, a bit less murderous. Slightly less murderous. Depends um, which council we... you live on. Exactly. Well, you're giving it away there, John. Our episode today is, um, well, we're calling it the rise and fall of council housing in Britain. Barrel of oh. laughs to be had there. Yeah. I'll be leading this one because I probably have more knowledge of council estates than I, John. I, 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 <laughs> I knew people who lived on estates uh, when I was growing up. But Some of my best friends there. lived on estates. You yeah. went shoot, shooting estates. <laughs> yes, John, that's exactly the sort of estate we're talking about. Um, I have a, a sort of passion for certain types of architecture. And I just want to make clear at this point that while I love um, that sort of brutalist municipal architecture, that's not to say I love what happened within those buildings at the time, but we'll come on to that later. So the rise and fall of, of council housing... Yes. Um, in Britain. So if we go back to end of the 19th, start of the 20th century, had the Industrial Revolution. Yes. And of course, what happened in the Industrial Revolution is it concentrated people in cities, right, where the factories Everyone were. moved to the city. Everyone moved to the city to be where the work was, right? So previously, when we were a more agricultural nation, people were spread yeah. out across the country. Suddenly, you've got these concentrations of people. And what that means, of course, is people living on top of each other in slums, essentially, you know, loads of families sharing um, houses. You've got entire families in one room and poverty and squalor were right. Yeah, those houses probably knocked up by the factory owners just to cram as many people in as they could. Yeah, if you read Charles Booth and people like that writing about poverty at the time, you know, you had... um, just rat infested, horrible situations. Yeah. Certain things were done to try and alleviate that. There was some sort of philanthropic um, uh, landowners or, or business owners um, who did create these, what they call model villages, uh, sort of subsidized workers' housing. So you had things like Bourneville from the Cadbury family, um, which was great, yeah. Bourneville, except they were Quakers. So you couldn't get a pint for love nor money, but you had oh, decent no, housing. That, this is a theme. This is um, a theme, isn't it? It Those is. Pubs. It is. Port Sunlight on the Wirral, built by the Lever yeah. Brothers for their soap factory. You had yeah. Salt Air Village by Titus Salts. Where, near where uh, I live and near where Spike, our uh, producer, lives, uh, we've got this Shaftesbury estate in uh, in Battersea. And that has uh, got no pubs and no churches. He'd said, neither God nor the devil will be on my <laughs> will be on my estate, he said. So uh, uh, they all had to go up to Lavender Hill to get drunk. But uh, yeah. another interesting example. Well, a lot of them were Quakers and, and were part of the temperance movement yeah. as well at that time. So hence, yeah. you know, these places were built, nice houses, but no pubs. Technically, the first council house, by which I mean housing that was built by 
the local authority, by the local corporations. The very first one, technically, was in Farringdon Road in 1865. But that was sort of an isolated... The council, the City of London, uh, built some tenements there. But the first actual council housing, which was an integrated policy, uh, was in Liverpool, the Liverpool Corporation, uh, who built the St Martin's Cottages in Ashfield Street in Liverpool, uh, in 1869. So it wasn't an estate, it was just a, a row of cottages, but that was the first proper council housing to be built. Um, right. So that was in the sort of late, getting towards the late 19th century. Towards the end of that century in 1889, you had the London County Council was formed. Previous to that, you had various regional councils um, across the, you know, the corporations yeah. across the country. And then in 1890, there was an important bit of legislation called the Houses for the Working Classes Act. And this was the first effort to build and regulate what had been just common lodging houses that would all have private owners. And it was the first right. sort of attempt at slum clearance to get rid of the slums and to build better housing for the poor working classes. Right. So you had, particularly in the east end of London, was where things were really bad. Um, And again, as I said before, Charles Booth was writing about this. Lots of people wrote about it. Lots of people were campaigning. You had the Reverend um, Osborne Jay, who was a campaigner uh, about this area in Bethnal Green. In that area, the first council estate in Britain was built, which was the Boundary Street Estate in 1893. 1,069 dwellings in tenements. Um, they had communal okay. amenities though, and they were sort of they were arts and crafts design. Right, I'll say. So they were quite pretty. Yeah. They had really good communal amenities as well, and they even had in the middle. So they were sort of built in the shape of a kind of a star, I guess, this cluster of housing. And in the middle, there was a lovely bandstand, which is still oh, there. Is it still there? Yes, I think I've been there. It's quite a historic site now, isn't it? Yeah. Just down the road, you've got the, the probably probably the grandparents of the Mitchell brothers were there. They're all, you know, beating each other up at Christmas, going, it's going to be the best Christmas ever, you yeah. bastard. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, EastEnders did famously start in the 1890s. You're right, John. Well um, around this time as well, you had the Millbank Estate in Westminster was built. Uh, that was built between 1897 um, and 1902. On the site where, of a prison. There was no prison there, wasn't there? Indeed. In fact, they used the bricks. They recycled the bricks from Millbank Prison um, to oh build God. that. Um, so towards the end of the 19th century, you're starting to get these council estates being built, but they're, they're being built from slum clearance areas. So they're clearing the slums and building the estates where the slums were. But would it be fair to say that there is a new sense that perhaps government needs to take some responsibility for something that would not have been a government area before you know that you would have left it completely Absolutely. to private enterprise and it that hadn't been working for the whole of the victorian period and so uh, an acknowledgement that someone's got to do something exactly around this time as well i think it's worth mentioning here about the garden city movement because right. it does it does relate to how future planning decisions were made so you had this guy um, Ebenezer Howard, he was a Quaker, he was a Hansard clerk, a uh, fluent Esperanto speaker. Oh, always useful. Always um, useful. <laughs> and you may have heard of Ebenezer Howard because he was the creator of Letchworth Garden Cities. Okay. Um, now, he wrote a book, um, well, he wrote it in 1898, and uh, Peter Hall, who wrote a very influential book on this topic called Cities of Tomorrow, he calls Ebenezer Howard the single most important character in the story of progressive housing. Okay, that's interesting. Um, he wrote this book 
called Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform, which was later renamed Garden Cities of Tomorrow. And his vision was that what you do is because of this concentration of poverty in cities and sheer numbers of people that were unsustainable, is what you do, you build these garden cities which are self-sufficient. So they're on the perimeters of the big cities. And they are self-sufficient communities which have a legally impenetrable ring of green belt around them. We'll come on to green belt a bit later. But they're self-sufficient. Right. So they have their own industry. They, they're they not just commuter hubs for the nearest city. They can sustain themselves. They've got their own shops, their own schools, their own yeah. libraries. And the, each one of these garden cities would house about 32,000 people. And this would be local authority um, housing, would it? These wouldn't be private houses. They would... And it would be both. Right. It would be both. Okay. In garden and so, cities. And so, um, and so he, we see those today some in places? We do, well, Letchworth Garden City was his first one that was built. And then he went... His, his original vision was a ring of six of these towns, yeah. which would be connected by road and rail from one to the next. Okay. Um, so there would be 200,000 people housed in this vision that he had. He, did, he completed Letchworth Garden City, which you can go to now. Also, Welling Garden City. He, he died before that was completed, right. but it was built along the same principle. As with all these projects, they all run out of money before visions are completed. So I think in this episode, you'll see a pattern of yeah. every brilliant idea someone has, they run out of money before it's realised. Right. And that's just the nature of of politics of the world yes but he's really important because he was the first person to have this idea that communities could be self-sustaining outside cities without people having to travel into cities for work yeah um go on i've got a stat here saying that uh in 1914 under one percent of britain's housing stock was was mm. council house yeah absolutely very very low at the beginning yeah it's still very much um and they were privately built as well at this Point and and still very yeah. much people were renting from private landlords still. Then you have yeah. World War One happens. Yeah, World War One is a sort of realization that the state can mobilize in a massive way. Yeah, um, well, well, they had to as well because obviously during World War One, but building virtually came to a standstill. There was no manpower. There was no yes. materials. Building costs were costs yes. were inflated, and so the the poorest of the poor couldn't afford to rent the privately either. So something really had no. to be done. A corporation housing was being built, but very cheaply. And it was very high density, these tenement blocks, shared kitchen and toilets, no running water. Rents were high because corporation dwellings didn't get subsidies from central government then. Um, so they weren't any use to the very poor. No. And that was actually, a, that seems to me a, be a, a perennial theme of this, reading about it, is that the, even, oh, yeah. even when council housing was made more widely available, it was the skilled working class who seemed to get housed, the unskilled Absolutely. and the, the poorest people seemed to get left out all the way along the way. And plus a change, yeah. you know, where it yeah. always seems to be the very poor, the people on irregular wages, people with yeah. other needs and issues like mental health, drug addiction, whatever, yeah. are sort of, yeah. Never, you know, it, it's always for the... Well, there's this divide, isn't there? They talk about the deserving and yes, the undeserving yes. And there's a, poor, this notion that... Um, such which a, yeah. is a whole episode we could do. Yes. I mean, uh, the thing about the First World War is, I suppose, after after the sacrifices made by the soldiers in the trenches was a psychological change about the duty of the nation to the people who'd uh, suffered and sacrificed so much. Yeah. Well, you had in 1917, you have what was called the Tudor Waters Committee Report. That was a report where recommendations were made. And actually, one of the architects involved in that was the architect of Letchworth Garden City, was Raymond uh, uh, Unwin. Mm-hmm. They noticed that new recruits of World War One were really unfit. Yeah. 
And the reason they were unfit is because they had poor housing conditions. So this is the first time the government have sort of bothered to really care about these unfit, poor working class and their housing conditions because they need them now. <laughs> we need to send fit people to their death, not unfit people to their death. This is this is a, exactly we're have you them know. march towards the German machine guns at a pace, not as a not at a slouch. And in fact, they even use military terms to describe it. The report said it said you cannot expect to get an A1 population out of C3 homes. Wow. A1 and C3 obviously yeah. being military fitness yeah. classifications. Wow. So the report had various recommendations. It recommended that houses should be built no more than 12 per acre. So it didn't want this sort of high density yeah. no. stuff that created the slums in the first place. And they it, they should have large windows to maximise the penetration of daylight um, and things like that. So they were starting to see really, that housing that? had to be of a decent quality. Yeah. Really progressive. These Tudor Waters standards sort of were were a high benchmark, really, that weren't always adhered to. But they they set it off with a quite ambitious Absolutely, but standards, they did. They? And, and they were, yeah, exactly. They were ambitious and they were progressive for that time. Yeah. You had then, obviously, Lloyd George made a famous promise that there should be homes fit for heroes. You had these working class yeah. soldiers that had been sent to the front line, yeah. sent to the trenches. A lot of them didn't make it back, but the ones that did, yeah. you know, what were they coming back to? To yes. slums, to, yeah. you know, and, and that was seen as being something when they did it, yeah. you know, that they should return as heroes. Yeah. Also, at this point, you'd had the Bolshevik uprising in Russia and the whole of Europe was terrified of that happening. So at this point, it was felt that you should appease the working classes to some point, right. keep them happy because right. then they won't revolt. Right. Um, so it wasn't, entirely altruistic. Uh, philanthropic yes, yes. and altruistic his yeah. uh, homes fit for heroes it was also because he didn't want a working class rebellion yeah. on his hands um so after world war one you had the what they call the addison act came in 1919 which was a housing and town planning act and they recommended that 500,000 council houses should be built a lot. absolutely yeah. and and to clear slums and then Following that 500,000 council houses, there should be a further 100,000 a year to replenish rented housing stock. So they've gone within 20 years from councils having yeah. hardly any stock at all to these really big, lofty goals. Yeah, and I think this comes out of the First World War, really, and the, the idea of homes for heroes and the, and the realisation that the state has a major role to play uh, in the welfare yeah. of its citizens. And that you've got to keep your working classes happy, otherwise those buggers will revolt. Yeah, exactly. So there's, a sort of, there's, there's two prongs there. There's scared of having your throat yeah. cut, but also wanting a healthy population, yeah. you know, for to do, exactly. do your bidding. For the next war yeah. that may or may not come. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> so council estates at this stage, we should say they're not council estates as we think of them now with high-rise blocks, no. they were cottage estates, yeah. so they were houses essentially. After the Housing Act of 1919, part of the Act gave London County Council, and this is quite important, gave them permission to build outside of the boundaries of, of London. Okay. Um into Essex, so which meant that they were able to build and collect rents from places outside of their jurisdiction. Wow. How did those local authorities feel about that? They might kind of been very happy. Well, probably not, but they probably were quite well subsidised. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, they might not have made... I think the locals might have yeah. had more to say about it yeah. than the, the, the councils. But so an example of it, they planned eight of these cottage estates. So they were housing estates. Um, Eight of them were planned initially uh, for London. The Beacontree Estate in Dagenham, right. which work started on that in 1921, finished in 1935. Um, and they were exceptional at the time because they had gas, electric, inside toilets, wow. fitted baths, front and back garden. 
Um, and Beacon Tree went on to become the largest public housing estate in the world at the time. Right. Um, now, the first residence, so you've cleared the slums in Bethnal Green. Right. And what you do, you start moving people out to these uh, cottage estates that are yeah. in Essex, right? So the but the problem you've got, obviously, is you need to start a community again right. out there. So residents that were selected to move to these estates were the relatively prosperous working class families because um, so they were factory workers or people working on buses and things yeah. like that um, because you had to create a society there. So you couldn't just have the poorest of the poor who weren't working, who weren't, you know, contributing to society. Right. Which meant, again, the poorest of the poor weren't really catered for. Yes. London County Council had very strict rules. If you were selected to move to one of their estates, uh, they had strict rules, rules on housework, your house and garden maintenance, oh, they, your children's yeah. behaviour. Um, you know, you really had to adhere. They interviewed you, didn't you? To, to these rules. They interviewed people about, I don't know if this is a specific example you're giving, but I think I should say our main source for this is the Lindsay Hanley book, uh, Estates, uh, which is a, a great mm -hmm. read. And the other one was Concretopia, which I read by John uh, Grindron, is it? Grindron, yeah. yeah. And uh, But Lindsay Hanley talks about the interviews that they had for potential tenants. Do you hang your washing inside or outside? Um, all sorts of little sort of class tests, mm. really. Are you upper working class or lower working class is really what they were trying to ascertain. Um, and uh, yeah, pretty, uh, it's just what you're saying about it's the deserving poor and the undeserving poor being sorted out. And we only want a certain type of family on our estate. I've got a, a letter here that I thought was really interesting. This was in um, Bristol and it was to a new tenant right. from the Corporation of Bristol Housing Estate. Sorry, a letter to a new tenant. And it says, the housing committee realised that you have been living under very undesirable conditions and that in worn out houses, it's very difficult to get rid of vermin. But there will be no excuse in your new house. Do not buy secondhand <laughs> furniture, bedding or pictures unless you are quite sure that the articles are free from vermin. Insects do not like soap and hot water and they also dislike dusters and polish. <laughs> so if in the new house you keep your windows open and keep your bodies and clothing, floors and stairs, furniture and bedding clean... Use the duster frequently on all skirting boards and ledges. You are not likely to be troubled again with vermin. This sounds a lot, but life isn't going to be all work for the housewife. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. The new house will be easy to keep clean. Yeah, that's a relief to me because <laughs> up till that point, I thought that sounds like a, a lot of work, but it's just a housewife doing exactly. it. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't clear. for you, John. Don't worry. That was <laughs> oh, all for the missus. Don't worry about that. Keep your vermin clean. <laughs> so don't buy pictures with vermin. It's quite hard to buy a picture with vermin, I would have thought. I don't know how... <laughs> Cockroaches live in the window frame, but yeah. You've got these uh, estates being built then on peripheries of cities. So you've got them in Bristol, yes. you've got Withenshaw in Manchester, Seacroft in Leeds. All the cities are having these now out-of-town council estates yeah. being built. The building of that was increased really by um, the first Labour government took office in 1924. Hooray! Hooray! Uh, and you had John Wheatley, who was the Minister of Health, who was responsible for housing. He secured a continuous building programme for 15 years right, and wanted to erect this housing for lower wage earners. Now, part of that, he was concerned about the lower wage earners. Um, so he called for new council estates to be lower quality, but higher density so they could house more people. Can I talk about the Cuttleslow Walls? Go on then. Yeah, the Cuttleslow Walls, I think it was in Oxford, a private developer built uh, this estate and because it was a council estate nearby, he built a wall across the road. He blocked off the road and he blocked off the fields to stop council people accessing the shops and amenities that were there for the private uh, housing people uh and that this remained for 30 years this war is yeah, that right 50s, is that, that's yeah. right and i think what's, what's interesting about it is at this time there were not really that many cosmetic differences between private houses and 
council houses. Right. Uh, whereas, just the people who lived in them. Just the people who lived in them. Whereas, you know, as yeah. time goes on, they became more visibly obvious. Um, at that time, they weren't. So the walls were really a fuck you to the yeah, <laughs> council it a, tenants. It was, a sort of so, it was a social Berlin Wall, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, incredible that it lasted 30 years. No one said, oh, take that down. Yeah. It's illegal. Yeah. And then we get to the World War II. Big problem for housing stock in the UK because of the Blitz. At this point, there's still a lot of slums that haven't been cleared yet. And you yeah. then have bombed out houses. So by as early as 1942, the government knew that they're going to need 4 million houses over the next 10 years. The Beveridge Report comes out, which talk about the five giants on the road of reconstruction post-war. The five giants being want, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. And this formed the basis for the welfare state. So they're starting to think at this point of what's going to happen next and how are we going to rehouse not only soldiers returning from war, but people who've been bombed out of their houses, yeah. plus the slums that we're already in the middle of clearing. Yeah. There was a commission to look into how to build new homes. Um, given the labour shortage and material shortages. What came out of that was prefab housing. In 1944, yeah. you had the Temporary Accommodation Act. Um, and this... Are these council houses? Are these, are these They are indeed. The they authorised the government to spend up to £150 million on the provision of temporary housing. Churchill himself, he said, the erection of these emergency houses will be carried out by exceptional methods on the lines of a military operation. The success okay. of this undertaking is not to be impeded by reliance at any point on traditional methods. So what they, a prefab house was basically made in a factory and then kind of assembled on site. You've probably seen them. They're like little bungalows yeah. that stand alone. There's still some around in Wandsworth, actually. They're still there. I remember canvassing them. They're, they're sort of only supposed to be up for about 10 years and they've lasted sort of 70. Well, so. yeah. Well, they were... Um, Supposed to last, I think, 15 years. In Catford, there's the Excalibur Estate, which is the largest collection of prefabs anywhere. And they've even got a prefab church there called St. Mark's. I know it was destined to be uh, redeveloped. I think in 2011, Lewisham Council got permission to redevelop them, but there's been a big fight. I know the 20th Century Society and other people, English Heritage, have been fighting to save them. Yeah, didn't Neil Kinnock grow up in one? Neil Kinnock grew up in one. He said it was like living in a spaceship. Fantastic. Was he that concise? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, the thing about these were, and I think what's really interesting, they were built, so old aircraft factories started building prefabs, the so Spitfire wow. factories, and they were built, a lot of them were built by German POWs because we were quite slow wow. to repatriate our POWs yeah. because we knew they were useful. In fact, there was a there was a public information film called The Ten Year Plan, which was made by oh. Unisecco, who made the prefab housing, and it starred Charles Haltry as a journalist. Oh my god! Oh yes, I think I read about <laughs> that. Gone. That's hilarious. And it was directed by Lewis Gilbert, who went on to make Shirley Valentine and Alfie. So there you wow, go. Wow, amazing. Um, is that on YouTube? Can people to them or on the Pathé website? I or it probably is, isn't it? It was it's called probably, it was yeah, called it was... The Ten Year Plan. Yeah, nineteen forty five. What a, film. What a catchy title. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're, we're so we're into the Labour government now in post-war forty-five. So yeah, nineteen forty-five. Uh, you've got Clement Attlee's government comes in. Nye Bevan, Minister for Health. He was also responsible for the housing program. He didn't have a housing minister at that time. No, they the wags the wags of the day said this government only has half an eye on housing. Oh, hello. See what they did there. Nye well, Bevan, half an eye. He he famously boasted that he never spent more than five minutes a week on housing because he was busy creating the NHS. It seems <laughs> crazy, said. doesn't it, after the war that they didn't have a minister for housing? But there we go. Yeah, who are yeah. we to criticise? Well, <laughs> in estates, uh, Lindsay Hanley does point out that maybe if there had been a dedicated ministry for housing, consulting with experts and things, some of the mistakes that did go on to be made probably wouldn't have been. Right. 
Um, but anyway, so there were vast plans for rebuilding Britain after World War II. Uh, Patrick yeah. Abercrombie was a very famous urban planner of this time. He'd um, worked on Plymouth and Hull and Bath and Edinburgh and Bournemouth in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And he created a Greater London plan, um, which was known as the Abercrombie plan. Part of that plan was to move people out of the city and to create a green belt around the city. Right. Yes. Um, if you're interested in Greenbelt, by the way, there's John Grinrod who wrote, and I don't know if I'm saying your name right, John, if you are listening. I know he uh, follows me on Twitter, so he might listen. Um, I'm sorry if I say your name wrong. Uh, who wrote Concretopia. He also wrote, has written a brilliant book called Outskirts, which is all about the Greenbelt. Right. So I do recommend that you read cool. that. Um, but what basically came out of Patrick Abercrombie's plans were new towns the new towns act of 1946 and i think if we leave it there and we'll come back in talking about harlow and stevenage because what's better isn't there a whole music genre came out of that tamla new town was that that's, that's, <laughs> that's that right i'm getting, I'm getting mixed up yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely <laughs> new right. town car <laughs> um, i wonder where you but, were going uh, with that. Yeah. I like, have i missed an entire genre of music <laughs> <laughs> Town the Newtown is famous. Uh, we'll have a quick break there. So and, go and um, make a cup of tea uh, in your fitted kitchen. Have a wee in your <laughs> indoor toilet that you've got in your oh, prefab the luxury, now. The luxury. Absolutely. And, uh, and we'll be back after this short break. Hello and welcome back to part two. We're talking about council housing. Um, we are indeed, the rise and fall thereof. I grew up in Maidenhead and Berkshire. There was a bit of council housing uh, on the other side of town, but it's uh, not a place famous for its I council I love that, the other side housing. of town. You were about... the other side of the Cottesloe Wall, weren't you, John? <laughs> we are, we were. We were the posh people down by the river. Uh, what about you, Angela? I grew up in Maidstone. Uh, There's a few notorious council estates in Maidstone. My dad had a yeah. flat on uh, Parkwood, which was one of the... Grimmest. It was always like that. Which school is near the council estate? Absolutely. Which is the rough school? I mean, which is the nice I grew, school? It's funny because I grew up in Kent, which still has the eleven plus. So I went to grammar school. So I didn't go to school oh, with okay. any council estate people. <laughs> the scum. God, it's like Kent. none of them passed eleven plus. <laughs> just yes. Yeah. Um, so my for my experience really of uh, council houses was you know uh, really when I got involved in the Labour Party and started canvassing. Yeah. I'd never seen such large scale working class mm. housing in my naive and sheltered life until I started knocking on doors of the Patmore Estate in Battersea, oh, yeah. where there were thousands and thousands of people um, living with it under a council who really had no interest in in making their life better or uh, improving their conditions. Yeah, I mean, my uh, but we're going to come on to that. We're going to come on to the sort of seventies and yeah. uh, sorry, the the eighties we'll anyway. Come on but, to that later. Yeah. So we are rebuilding after World War Two. Um, we've had the New Towns Act. So several new towns were built, including Stevenage, Crawley. Hemel Hempstead, Bracknell, Milton Keynes. What a obviously. list of glamour. Oh, this is like they? the fashion shows of Isn't Milan, Paris. Um, one, of the, one of the most famous and, and most important ones was Harlow in Essex. Um, yep. I love this. There's this beautiful thing I read in one of the books because obviously, again, these new towns were built to ease the pressure on cities. So people, were, the first ones were built around yeah. London. People moved out of London um, into these new towns. Uh, you did have new towns elsewhere as well. You had Cumbran in Wales, East Kilbride in Scotland, Corby in Northamptonshire. Yeah. There were others as well. But there was this lovely uh, quote from a, someone who moved out to Harlow from the sort of inner city London as a kid. And he said, when yeah. we first moved to Harlow, all the kids were given a booklet on how to behave in the countryside. They told us you mustn't oh kill God. birds, you had to leave birds' eggs alone and you mustn't break trees. <laughs> 
<laughs> mustn't break trees. That's great. I mean, the thing we should say about these uh, the, the experience of moving into brand new council estates, they've got such a bad name now that we forget mm. that for many people, this is a huge improvement in their oh, lives. Absolutely. I remember talking to the old people. When I was canvassing the old people on, in Battersea, they said, oh, when we moved here, we thought we moved into Buckingham Palace, mm. you know, indoor bathroom. Indoor toilets uh, were massive. You know, fitted kitchens, refrigerators. Yeah, they thought it was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. What, yeah, was, Hindsight, again, is a, you know. It was the quality of life and the wages of the poorest yeah. people in our society. Which that we, we will definitely low. come on to. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, Angela, I'll let you get back to the, the agenda here. So, Harlow <laughs> was also... Um, interesting because it's where the very first high-rise block was built ah. so these mm. high-rise blocks were first seen in europe uh you had, they were called point blocks you had in sweden um and the yep. first one in the uk was the lawn in harlow in 1951 wow. uh, they were built of it's quite early isn't it? Yeah. yep they were a one and two bedroom flats uh bed sitters and it was 10 floors um the projecting ends of each wing were used to give each a south-facing balcony and the wow. opening ceremony was performed in May 1951 as an official event of the Festival of Britain. So oh, we so are cool. at the end of sort of getting towards the end of Atlee's tenure here. The welfare yeah. state's been created. We've got the Festival of Britain. And um, yeah. and these were architecturally really important. And I think this is a point where I really want to just talk a little bit about architecture of council housing. Um, oh, go ahead. Because I think what's interesting about it is... Um, Obviously, suddenly there are all these uh, tenders to put out to architects to design housing to meet the needs of the welfare state that had been created, right? Yeah. Um, so what ends up happening is you've got architects who by nature are middle class and above, um, yes. you know, and have these highfalutin lofty ideals about a oh, God, socialist yeah. utopia and how this could work. Yeah. Um, of course, none of them actually have to live in council housing. So the sort of International Congress of Modern Architects had come together on a cruise in Athens in the 30s. And, oh, God. And they decided there's four functional problems, demands of home, work, recreation and transport. And these could all be addressed in architecture. And so once these tenders start flying about for different estates in the UK... These architects have come with all these ideas they've brought from Walter Gropius in the Bauhaus movement, from Le Corbusier, um, who's a Swiss architect, who his famous Unité d'Habitation in Marseille. Um, these incredible structures with big walkways and um, integral shops and parades and um, this sort of brutalist architecture. You had the Smithsons who were... The pioneers of brutalism, new brutalism in the UK, they famously went on to build Hun Stanton's secondary modern school, uh, which is held up as the sort of beginning of brutalism. And they were very influenced architects by ideas in Russia, constructivism and modernism. And the idea of modernist architecture is that form forever follows function. So you had your garden cities and your cottage estates have been made to the arts and crafts style. So they were very ornate and to do with nature and stuff. And suddenly you had this, no, it's form over function. It's concrete. It's wood. It's show the materials for what they are. And you love all this stuff. Do you love all this stuff? I do. I mean, you've got estates like the Gorbals in, in Scotland, which were yeah, Glasgow, slums yeah. that um, were sort of torn down and rebuilt. And one of their most famous buildings, the Queenies, they're known as, was built by Basil Spence, uh, who also built Sussex University, where I went and built oh, the... Right. Um, 
the room I'm getting married in next year. Fantastic. In fact, even my engagement ring I'm showing John on there is is uh, it's a little slab of concrete. You've got to tweet that go. later. We'll have to tweet that when this episode goes out. Your well, I've already tweeted ring. it several yeah. times, my concrete engagement Fantastic. ring. That's how much I love this architecture. But so you're actually um, getting married in a in a sort of brutalist I'm, I'm getting married in the meeting house at Sussex University, which is a Basil Spence sort of brutalist um That's so cool. Place of worship, if you like, but we're having a humanist wedding there. But the, so it was very functional, this stuff. And I think what, you know, I find it beautiful, but I think what people were never consulted about what they wanted, you no, know. And the truth absolutely. is, the families, what they really wanted were gardens and, you know, and a little bit of outdoor space and things like that, which were really neglected in a lot of. Yeah, there was a thing I read about, uh, I think it was Architectural Review were doing a special feature on um, patting themselves on the back about these uh, uh, high rise blocks. And they, one of the junior sort of editors said, should we, should we ask people what they like about them or what they don't like? And the, the, the editors were like, looked at him with complete disgust and went, but we know. We know that this is right. We know that this is the future. And of course, you know, high rise blocks have proved to be a, you know, a social disaster, really. Yeah. Um, one of the great there mistakes a, of the 20th century. Absolutely. I mean, there was a real paternalistic view, I think, from absolutely. these. And they were all having fun. They were, you know, lots of like the Golden Lane estate in London. Yes. Uh, which next to the Barbican there uh, was, in fact, built by the same people, um, Chamberlain, Powell and Bond. But the com they, they'd open up these competitions to architects to design. And the Smithsons came up with a design for Golden Lane that they'd made this big pop art collage. And this pop art collage became famous, even though it wasn't the design that was selected. And so they were all congratulating themselves. But meanwhile, yes. people had to live yes. in Golden Lane. So if we look at the, you know. look at the uh, design for my block, what we've got is a 70-storey building with a broken lift so they can carry the buggy to the top floor. They don't need a gym. And then <laughs> exactly. you've got all sorts of interesting species of mildew living on the inside of urine <laughs> towers. So it was like no, they didn't live there to think about the concrete undercrofts that might help create crime shelter muggers and, yeah exactly um, you know and you'd be trapped in these corridors of you know with no escape routes you have very little open space they also wildly underestimated how many cars people would end up having absolutely no garages yeah the very little thought was given to how environment affects crime uh, just yeah, a, none just at all a, at that a, a point personal very experience. much done in reflection our uh, our producer listening in here went to a brand new school that was built uh, around here where I was involved with the campaign for it and there was this undercroft there was this bit underneath the gym uh, and when the, we were building when we were looking at the designs all the teachers went that is going to be where all the trouble is don't don't have an undercroft yeah. do not have a bit of concrete underground with no light it's just going to be where all the fights are it's going to be where trouble happens and they said the architect was going no no this is uh, it makes the most of the space and we've got play space there and we built the school all the fights happened down in the undercroft and we ended up filling it in and creating space there <laughs> it's just like yeah. you know uh, um the space and light and these things directly affect behavior and i don't think these people absolutely. really ever took this into into account when they were building these places absolutely housing management was something that became a big issue what places that were well managed were um, you talked about erna goldfinger who designed yeah. trellick tower trellick tower you know massively iconic brutalist structure i think yeah. it's beautiful but it was known as the Tower of Terror in the 70s because wow. it had no... He, he himself, Goldfinger, had sort of said it needs a concierge. It needs somebody yeah. there, you know, who can address... I mean, because suddenly the thing with living in communal living, council communal living, is you don't even have control over your own bin. No. You know, you have no... no. You're so reliant... And if the people that you're reliant on aren't accessible to you... 
And everything Absolutely. just goes to shit. That that is uh that that there's nothing wrong with uh, uh high rise living per se, mm. and it might mm. suit some people or students or young single people or even older single people if the lifts are good. Mm. And in New York they make it work because there's money and there is uh as you say, you have a concierge, you have infrastructure renewed and improved. Exactly. Uh, but when it's done on the cheap and the materials are rubbish and uh they have thin plasterboard so you can hear your neighbours having sex every Thursday night. It's every you know, Thursday night. <laughs> well, this is the 60s it was a different time but uh, uh, when things are done on the cheap you know so I think people got the idea that tall buildings are bad per se that they're, they're not good for families mismanaged that want buildings mismanaged and, buildings yeah there are people who and also, might live in a tall building yeah. well once the Tories came back in obviously uh, Churchill was re-elected in 1951 and you had yeah. Macmillan was your housing minister then and he very much well that's when he, they realised that if they were going to meet any of the targets that they promised in their manifesto, which were quite high, yeah, they were going to have to cut spending. Yeah, um, and and he sort of framed it as a there, there was the Macmillan's People's House, a crusade, for, wasn't it, really? a council house built for less than a thousand pounds. You know, yeah, and and he had this sort of pile them high. Yeah, um, they they. they what's amazing is that both governments in 1951 were making. Uh, manifesto promises of huge numbers of council houses mm. it was such a change to sort of uh, our lifetimes but uh, in 1951 the Tories were out promising Labour on council housing but but they did it because yeah. they but, produced cheaper and less good quality council houses absolutely and this is when well, this is when the, the social problems started to get noticed there was a very famous study in 1957 called Family and Kinship in East London and that looked yes. at these people who had been relocated from the East End slums of Bethnal Green out to Essex and right. that's when they started realising that the problem with slum clearance and moving these groups of communities into housing which didn't foster a sense of community in the way that the slums had Yes, that the people that actually lived there were starting to say we d we're not happy we don't like yeah. this but yeah. the government at this point still are very paternalistic and don't really care and, and we're just uh, and, and there was a lot of ego involved I think in council leaders you know uh, ordering this thing can I read a little bit out of Lindsay Hanley's books from the 1950s here she goes um Birmingham's Labour Council leader, Harry Wooden, visited one of the earlier system-built estates, a glass of whiskey in his hand, and recalled the city's then architect, A.G. Shepherd Fiddler, ordered five identical blocks, just as if he was buying bags of sweets. <laughs> so yeah, this exactly. Is, this, is how, this is how it happened. What you mentioned there is exactly what happened next. You mentioned the system-built estates. What yeah. happened in the 60s, you had Keith Jovis, whose family firm was Bovis, the constructors. Right. Um, he introduced the plan to use these system build tower blocks and when he introduced that plan it was the 1963 conservative party conference they were so pleased with themselves he got a seven minute standing ovation oh my God. <laughs> now what this actually meant these system build tower blocks it meant several things one it meant you didn't have to have such highly skilled labor to build your tower blocks right. because they were made from large it, it's called lps the large panel system so these large panels of concrete were created in factories and then they were just sort of slotted together like a house of cards made right. of concrete panels. Okay, and the floors cards. and walls would literally just rest upon each other, held together just by their own weight until a lateral force is applied. So right. suddenly you didn't need skilled workers, so that was cheaper. They were cheap to make. And um, also at this time there were problems were starting to be uh, noted with the concrete that they had um, this pre-cast, reinforced concrete started to crumble as well. So they were... So you had all these things. And then a, a real flashpoint came. 
Uh, well, that's a bad turn of phrase. I should not have said flashpoint there when we're talking about. So, 1968, you're talking about Ronan yeah. Point. Yeah. So, so, go back to uh, Newham Council uh, yeah. in the 60s. Uh, all the councillors on the housing committee decided to name the blocks after themselves. Poor oh. councillor Ronan had no idea that <laughs> he was going to live would to regret that forever would be associated with this uh, tower block uh, yeah. called Ronan Point. So, so if um, go on, it was, have, it was well, only it was, one morning, wasn't it? It was. Well, the building was completed in March 1968. It was built by Taylor Woodrow using this system build tower yeah. blocks that were so lauded at the time for being cheap and being able to build quickly and to high yeah. concentration. Uh, it was built, um, but the system that they used had been designed for buildings that were 16 that's one six stories less than they actually built. So right. they were building 16 stories higher than the construction system had been designed for. Uh, the designers, who were Danish, Larson and Nielsen, they'd approved the plans. They said it'd all be absolutely fine. Um, so Ronan Point was 210 feet high, 22 stories using these yeah. big concrete panels. Um, so so, it's so actually, early, what is it like? A few weeks, it'll be a few weeks open, hasn't it? When it's Mrs. not been Watson open very long. So it day. opened in March on at 5.45am on the 16th of May. So a couple of months later, uh, there was Ivy Hodge who lived on the 18th floor. She went into her kitchen in flat 90 to make a cup of tea, turned the gas on and there was a Boom. gas explosion. Um, yeah. Now, what then so, happened was because these concrete panels have been so poorly secured and it turned out on investigation that there were gaps in the concrete panels big enough to drop coins through. Wow. And that, that was had like been when it was three weeks old. When it was three weeks old that had been stuffed with newspaper to block God. the gaps. Yeah. That's yeah. the sort of so, workmanship we were talking about. Uh, it was just a huge uh, one corner flat taken out from poor Ivy's flat, but it took out all the flats in the whole corner of that building. And yeah. it was such a powerful visual image of the failure of high rise building yeah. because you just saw like a pack of cards, every flat above and below her was just taken out. Fortunately, these were all the kitchens and it was quarter to six in the morning. So most people were in bed, but people woke up with their beds hanging out from a high-rise block. Uh, yeah. People before people killed, I think. Yeah. People on ledges. But it wasn't just that it was a uh, tragedy for the four people who were killed. It was a sort of watershed moment in the faith in tower blocks. Is that fair to say, Angela? Well, it was and it wasn't because there was an investigation, but as always, there was a cover-up um, yeah. to a certain extent. The building of high-rises definitely slowed. At this point, yeah. but three months after the explosion, there was an investigation and then eventually the block was repaired and it was strengthened along with the seven blocks near it. Gas was taken out. Oh, God. So they didn't have gas systems anymore. And then it reopened just, um, wow. I can't remember how, but not long afterwards. Um, yeah. So, I mean, luckily, when the explosion happened, the four, because it'd only been open two months, the four flats above the flat where the explosion was weren't occupied. Otherwise, that oh, okay. would have been a different wow. story as well. And like you yeah. say, because it happened so early in the morning, people weren't in their kitchens where the explosion. Yeah. But it's such a powerful image of, you know, that was always used in any article about yeah. social housing and tower blocks. You always saw that photo of the collapsed corner of that whole tower block. Absolutely. High rises then from the late 60s began to be replaced by what they call council garden estates, which were more low rise estates. And the way that they kept them with the same residential dense density as the high tower blocks was by pedestrianising them. So that's when you start getting these pedestrianised estates. There's a really good example in Lambeth 
of a garden estate from the late 60s, which is Cressingham Gardens near Brockwell Park. Um, so you had pathways instead of roads through them, so that made them narrower. You also had safe play areas for children, which is something that had been obviously neglected right. and not bothered about in tower blocks. So, yeah, at this point, so we're now in the 70s, coming to the 70s, and people are starting to notice now the social decline. You've got Trellick Tower being called yes. the Tower of Terror. You've got the tabloids constantly um, talking about what's been, um, uh, you know, these terrible pits of crime. And this is also, you know, you've got the world oil crisis has happened. You've got deindustrialization. You've got the British government applying for loans from the IMF to stay afloat. You've got a growing immigrant population forced into the cheapest housing. So you've got economic decline, really, is what exactly. we're talking about. And the, and, and the victims of economic decline are the people uh, in council housing. And so they are, people are associating the housing uh, with the problem rather than the quality of life of the people living in them, I think exactly. it's perhaps fair to say. And there were certain reports done. There's Pearl Jeffcott did a really interesting study. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of sociological studies started to be done by the end of the 70s into why these flats weren't working. And, and while the social and economic aspects were part of it, you can't ignore that the architecture itself had a lot to blame, like we talked about earlier. Well, it was because it was done so cheaply and... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and just wasn't particularly nice living environment for families. And then, John... What happened in 1979? I can't remember. Can you remember something? Something big happened in 1979. Oh, my what God. Do you know what? It happened May the 3rd, 1979. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher came to power. Oh, that was it. It's sort yes. of the major moment in the story of the welfare state. To be fair, the idea of selling off council houses had already started in uh, with conservative authorities where I was living in Wandsworth. In uh, 78, the Labour council had just completed a whole block uh, and then the Tories got in in 78 and sold it off to private developers. It was built as a council block. They sold it off to private developers. It was developers. Macmillan, wasn't it? You first allowed public housing yeah. to be sold off. And, and really, it was his um, vision, wasn't it? His dream of a property-owning democracy that started really in the 50s. And then subsequent Tory government started to do it bit by bit. But it was Thatcher. Well, Thatcher's right to buy policy was a it seemed like a progressive idea because you were going to council tenants you can own your own property and you'll be uh, responsible for the upkeep of your own place and that will make you have an investment in it and have a stakeholder in it and I was listening to a documentary about this uh, on the radio and heard Michael Hesseltine talking about it in glowing terms and the Labour Party was slow to pick up on the mm -hmm. central problem with right to buy mm -hmm. not that people shouldn't be allowed to own their own homes of course they should but Thatcher made it illegal for councils, Labour councils quite often, to spend any of the money that they got in receipts from council housing on building new homes yeah. or improving its existing stock. And that was the bit of the um, policy they didn't really sing about yeah, so much. Yeah, so it was basically um, about reducing the housing stock. Yeah. So in night, when she came to power, when she came to power, nearly half the people in Britain lived in a council house, yeah. just under half. Incredible, really. 70% well, in Scotland. Thatcher you know. was essentially opposed to the idea that because you know she didn't think working class people should be given the same privileges as sort of lower middle class people that have been saving their money or whatever but I think she changed her mind when she realized you know her victory in 79 depended on working class votes um, I think she thought that there was a such a thing that, that the state shouldn't uh, be responsible for providing uh, anything and mm. that the individuals uh, should do it uh, 
and there's a there's a progressive argument for allowing people to buy their own homes, of course. But as long as you replace uh, the social housing that's yeah, sold off. <laughs> yeah. So now we're in the situation, uh, we've inherited the situation where uh, private landlords who you know ended up getting those council houses mm. are now letting them out to the councils yeah. to house people who can't afford to pay the rents on the on the private sector. Yeah. So the councils are now out of pocket and private landlords are making huge amounts of money. And it's all because the housing stock was never replenished. Absolutely. And also you have the situation of people buy their own council houses, they've then got a foot on the housing ladder and then move away yeah. from those estates, you know, leaving that vacuum to be sucked up by buy to let landlords who then you know, so that then you end up with ghettoization. So this happened. Well, this happened with different levels of enthusiasm. The right to buy uh, Wandsworth, where I was campaigning for Labour throughout the eighties, was a uh, was a leading uh, proponent of um, council house sales. You didn't have to live in the borough to buy a council house. You could work in the borough and buy a council house. So you just had to register a business in the in the, in, in within the three you know constituencies, and you could just buy a cheap council house at massive reduction, sixty percent. Mm. Uh, mm. So it's Basically, private landlords were collecting properties and letting them out, uh, and these weren't being replaced. It was a it was a sort of monumental scandal with a political uh, ambition to it as well, because uh, they realised that once people had an investment in their council house, they were more likely to vote Conservative, and they would put out rumours that Labour were going to compulsory repurchase their house because Labour was so bad at getting its message across. So me as an activist. Yeah. Uh, in Battersea, we would go, this is not true. We'd quickly draft a leaflet saying there is no policy from Labour Party to compulsorily repurchase your council house. And we put it through all the letterboxes of council houses with new doors because we thought those are the, <laughs> the, those, they're the ones who bought it, the ones with the yeah. new doors. Well, yeah. that was the sign, wasn't it? That was the, do you yeah. know the, the Sunday People, I think it was, held a competition to see, um, oh, let me find it. I've got it. Here we are. They ran a competition yeah. offering a foreign holiday to the owners of the most improved ex-council house. Because obviously, when you were living yeah, in council yeah. accommodation, your colour had to be a certain, your front door had to be a certain colour. Your, you know, you couldn't yeah. put your individual stamp. Suddenly, houses were being yeah. pebble dashed. They were, being, you know, yeah, you could yeah, really yeah. individualise your house. And the target, the, the Tories of uh, Westminster and Wandsworth were were, t- were targeting particular wards to sell off uh, council housing to to keep hold of the power in those boroughs and Westminster got caught and Shirley Porter was you know in a lot of trouble Wandsworth um, they uh, uh, left some papers in the photocopier but they didn't have quite the smoking gun so those guys <laughs> never got prosecuted in the way they should have done um, but both both those uh, flagship boroughs were doing the same thing and of course this led to social decline for the reasons that we've set out you know that now only yeah. the very poorest of the poor are in these particularly in these high rise these big estates um, and you have um, things like what happened at the Broadwater Farm Estate, uh, yeah. riots there, you know, where PC Keith Blakelock was, because yeah. there were there was no house, there was no management of these estates, there was no, um, yeah. you know, no one to ensure that these residents were not being yeah. neglected. Um, well, it's gone down from about half to about twelve percent of the population a generation later were in council houses. So that's a massive decline in the state's provision of a, a fundamental human right, which is a, a home. You know, it was no longer uh, provided by the state. So incredible change. And then, of course, towards the late eighties, you have the stock transfer of council housing away from councils into housing associations, um, yeah. who are then in the late eighties opened up to. Um, you know, or in the 90s, rather, opened up to being able to use private 
finance initiatives and um, so suddenly these not-for-profit housing associations are now using private contractors. And so any sort of sense of of your public housing being owned by the state and run by the state and is gradually eked away yeah. over that time. And, 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 and there, was, there was a social stigma attached to being a council tenant, right? Right, going right back, and uh, always yeah. rumours that you know don't give people a bath; they'll only keep their coal in it. And that sort of attitude continued right through uh, the generations, yeah. but was exploited by the Conservatives that you don't want to live in a council house; you're better than that. Uh, not an attitude that exists on the continent, I don't think. That no, rent is no. to be uh, uh, somehow a less a less successful person. You know, it's just uh, horses for courses. But over here in Britain, if you don't own your own home, you're somehow looked down upon. Exactly. And then, so this decline of council estates carries on. You then have uh, Tony Blair comes in and his way to rather heavy handedly deal with it is uh, with um, Anti-Social Behaviour Act in 2003. Yeah. starts handing out ASBOs um, and but really not really addressing the core yeah, I mean, they did massive uh, spending, sort of doing up estates, but they didn't mm. build keep, build many more council houses. It felt like that no. moment had passed. I, my hope for Brown when he came in had been that he was going to address housing, but no government really has addressed the massive problem of housing, mm-hmm. and which is why we have the situation now of young people spending most of their wages, you know, sharing and private renting, uh, tiny private renting, mm. sharing, uh, crowding into small houses, and of course since. We've lost 2010, it's been further undone and undone and undone. You had yeah. the Housing and Planning Act 2016, ended lifetime council tenancies, um, yeah. you know, forced local authorities to sell their high-value homes, um, gave yeah. right to buy privileges to housing association tenants as well as council tenants, yes. which was a massive... But, but no- but no guarantee that that stuff will stay in 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 the public domain. No. And so now we've got the bizarre situation, uh, certainly here in London, uh, where I can look out my window and I can see massive tower blocks being built at Vauxhall, mm-hmm. uh, all private, yep. but not just private, kept empty deliberately to be sold on empty and traded like gold or silver or shares. So these are owned by people in Singapore, Malaysia, Dubai, mm-hmm. and they're uh, how, an apartment in London is traded as an empty flat on the stock market and uh, meanwhile you've got homeless people sitting at the bottom of them or, or the young people who can't afford to get any housing at all and that Absolutely. is unfettered capitalism applied to housing which is one of the fundamental human needs uh, yes, so depressing. that's the complete mess we, a mess we have got Absolutely. in since the since the very laudable ambitions of post-war government or pre-war governments, but sort of post-Lloyd George, really, to yeah. provide housing on a large scale for the British people. And I think it just shows that if you are going to provide anything for anyone, doing it on the cheap never works. <laughs> never, no, never works. Never works. And, uh, Having socialist utopian ideals is great, but you have to pay for them. As we are now, it's, we've sort of, it's not on the, uh, on the, on the public agenda that... No. Uh, we should be building millions of homes and that people should be allowed to rent them off a local authority or a housing association. This is a basic fundamental human right that uh, uh, has got us into this terrible mess we're in now. And I think yeah. I, it would be remiss not to mention it, even though we're not going to talk about it. But obviously you end up with situations like Grenfell in 2017, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, where the, yeah, the, because... the most poor of the working classes were severely let down by their council who cut corners, didn't care, yeah. were repeatedly warned by the Grenfell Action Group of the dangers yeah. of fire in that building 
uh, but still made decisions to go for cheaper options. And uh, well, we see yeah. what the consequences maybe, of that are. Maybe that tragedy will be the moment where uh, the, the country and the uh, political classes realise that housing has to be back on the agenda I, in the I, way that the Titanic disaster changed the laws mm. on shipping. Maybe Grenfell will be uh, the low point in the history of housing uh, uh, since 1979 and things. Might I just, I just, I think it might have been had Brexit not been the only thing on anyone's oh, agenda for the last three years right. until the coronavirus. So, well, um, you yeah, know, well, yeah, let's well, on just that not forget. Note, <laughs> Oh, that depressing note. Yeah. Uh, squatting was made illegal. You know, um, everything has been conspiring against the uh, poorest in our society, getting any sort of foothold uh, on the housing ladder. And um, never, don't forget that when, you know, uh, 30 years ago, you didn't see homeless people sleeping all over the streets of London. That is a new development and an unnecessary uh, thing that we've had to live with. And it all comes from decisions taken by politicians and the fact that housing uh, is not been treated as a fundamental human right in the way that we do with education and health. You know, nobody's going to say take away the health service now. Well, it's weird, isn't it? That we're bed. so fiercely protective of, yeah. of certain national welfare state services, but not housing yeah. for some reason. We've yeah. been sold this yeah. idea that to not own your yeah, own house private. is a failure. Um, yeah. And that yeah. will take a lot of undoing. Yeah. Social attitudes as well. But, you know, the politicians can take the lead there. Absolutely. On that cheerful note, Yay. <laughs> join Shelter, support Shelter. They're a great charity doing great work. Absolutely. Uh, read Lindsay Hanley's book, Estates. It's a, uh, it's a cracking read and she and knows a lot about this. Um, and what was the other book? Concretopia, John Grimwood and Outskirts by John Grimwood. Is, um, he grew yeah. up on New Addington Estate in Croydon and talks about that oh, right. sort of building on the green belt there. And, and Lindsay Hanley is writing from personal experience as well. Yeah. And, um, and she wrote another book called Respectable as well, which is about the sort of class differences, which were very interesting. Um, thank you very much, Angela, for leading me through uh, the history of council housing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a massive subject to try and cover in one episode. It really um, is. Send us in your uh, your suggested topics. Send us in your nice comments on Twitter. Do review um, us on uh, iTunes. Um, five stars would be nice. Write us a nice little review. That'd be nice as well. Tell your friends and family. And uh, and we'll see you next time on We Are History. Goodbye. <laughs>